and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. This coming Sunday, February 14th, is Valentine's Day, and we couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk about the genre of romance. If you are of a certain age, you may most associate romance novels with Fabio, the long-haired king of romance novel covers. But romance is a very wide umbrella. There are historical romances, like the books that inspired the Netflix series Bridgerton, classical romances, think Jane Austen books, and queer romances. Some romances are just about the emotional aspects of love, while others venture into the erotic beyond just a little kiss. Our guest this week, Tiffany Rice, is a Louisville-based erotic romance author who started writing her first romance novel while a seminary student. She left seminary, though, to follow her love of writing and is now a USA Today best-selling author of over 28 books, including the original Center series and The Red. She has a dedicated fan base all over the world, and I even recently saw a Facebook fan club for her based in Italy. Tiffany gives us a Romance for Dummies crash course on the difference between romance, erotica, and smut. She also talks about how her preference for fantasy books as a child morphed into writing a different kind of fantasy, why she doesn't let preconceived notions against her genre bother her, and why being married to another writer is a two heads are better than one situation. Amy and I are very excited and a little nervous to talk to our guest this week. Her name is Tiffany Rice, and she's the USA Today bestselling author of The Red. So she's going to be telling us all about a genre that Amy and I have just kind of dipped our toes into a little bit. So Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's it's nice to have something on my planner. Uh <laughs> We always aim to be a little bit of a fun diversion for people. I appreciate um, it. It's been depressing. My <laughs> husband, Andrew, and I have a planning meeting every Monday morning at breakfast. The past few months, it's been so this week, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> we keep doing it in the hope something will come up. So thank you all for giving me something to put in my nice plan. <laughs> well, I hear that you are a fellow Kentuckian. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? And tell us a little bit about that. I am from Owensboro, Kentucky, raised in Owensboro my entire life, which God bless Owensboro. It's about the best city in the world to breed a writer because there's so little to do, especially when you grow up (laughs) in the 80s and early 90s. There's just so little there for kids to do that you either go insane or you become a writer. I just read constantly. It was just this constant escapism, childhood in Owensboro. So you said that you were a voracious reader as a kid. What kind of books or genres did you like to read? I was actually really enjoyed the stuff that we read in elementary school. You know, when you're fifth grade and they give you a wrinkle in time, how can you not fall in love with that? So I remember fourth grade falling in love with 
A Cricket in Times Square. I started reading the Chronicles of Narnia, which I had no idea were religious allegories. I mean, if you told me that then, I wouldn't have believed you. I think I was in college before I even knew that. I just thought they were fantasy novels, but I love those. My best friend at the time was big into the Little House on the Prairie books, and I tried those, and I was like, I don't care about the prairie, and I don't care about this little house. <laughs> I want astronauts. I want talking animals. I definitely leaned toward fantasy science fiction when I was younger. And even through middle school, my first adult novels were all Star Trek The Next Generation novels and the novelizations of the Star Wars films. And oddly enough, I still say the novelization of Return of the Jedi is one of the best science fiction novels I've ever read. It's just beautifully done. Huh. Yeah, didn't know that that was out there, but it was really, really good. And then I got into high school and, you know, it's a big deal when you remember a day in high school when you discovered an author. A friend of mine was reading Interview with a Vampire mm. and the title stole my heart. And so at about age 15, I started reading Anne Rice and I fell madly, passionately in love with her books and started to read through everything. And when you read Anne Rice's vampire books, then you get to the, the Mayfair Witches and then you get to her erotica, the Sleeping Beauty books. And those were life altering. So and now as an adult, do you have any writers who you consider like your, your favorites? Uh, I know for myself, Jane Eyre is probably like that book for me. But do you have any authors that are like that for you or certain books that are like that for you? Oh, yeah, of course. The Vintner's Luck by Elizabeth Knox is a book I recommend to everyone. And I can't remember who told me to read it, but it's one of these books that's treasured in the gay community. It's written by a woman from New Zealand, but it's about an, a fallen angel who meets a male Vintner in I think 18th century France and they fall in love and the angel becomes sort of the good luck charm of the vineyard. And it's a very dark, sad love story and it's just magnificent. So I recommend that to everyone. And Elizabeth Knox is just phenomenal. It was really interesting over the summer, her book, which I have, but I haven't read yet because it's about 800 pages long. She released a fantasy novel called The Absolute Book, which was on Slate. The article was something like, why isn't this book published in America? It is the greatest fantasy novel of all time. Um, oh, Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, she's from New Zealand. I imported three or four copies in from New Zealand, one for myself and a bunch to sell on eBay so other people would have them. It's like, well, I love her. I, I want to get her books in, into America. And that was something to distract me during the pandemic. And I still haven't read the thing because it's a brick, but I'm kind of holding out <laughs> to the end. Like, this is the thing that will get me over the COVID hump. I have this book <laughs> to look forward to between now and getting vaccinated. But you'll notice there's not a lot of romance or erotica in there or any. <laughs> It's not unusual. I, there's two romance writers who I read, Mary Baylog and Grace Burroughs, who I read sometimes. And I met Mary Baylog and I asked her what she reads. And she says mystery novels. Hugh Devereaux gave a talk once, and you know, she's a legendary romance novel. And somebody asked her at the end of the talk what she reads. And she said mystery novels. So a lot of us, we do not read what we write. We will read it up until the point we start writing it because we love the genre and it means a lot to us. But once you start writing it, you don't want to read it anymore. It's like the old joke about the uh, the gynecologist who comes home to the horny wife and he's like, I don't need to see one more of those today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also it's very hard to enjoy reading what you write because you're constantly editing it in your head going, I wouldn't do it like that. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about how you became a romance erotica writer. So you wrote an article for HuffPost about how you became that. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey for you? I had an idea for a book, which eventually became The Siren. And it was sort of a dark women's fiction novel, dark, sexy literary fiction. I didn't know what it was. It didn't have a genre. I didn't picture it anywhere but in the general fiction section in a bookstore. But it was a very weird book and took about six years to write on and off. But first books always take forever to write because there's there's no pressure. You're not on deadline and you have a day job and boyfriends and girlfriends and stuff. So it took me forever to get it finally done. And so I queried seven agents and only one even wrote back to me and she asked for pages and then she rejected the book beautifully I think she said I was in the 99th percent of of writers just for writing style but the book had no plot (laughs) Uh, and she couldn't sell it so she said if you add more romance to it I can sell it as a romance if you add more sex to it I could sell it as an erotic novel so I did both added more romance and more sex and I discovered I had a fairly decent knack for sex scenes, probably just because I read so many, starting with Anne Rice's Sleeping Beauty books and Bertrice Small books, which were the beginnings of erotic romance and romance and a few others that I read in high school. I always liked the romance novels that were that were steamier. So I had a knack for them and the book sold to Harlequin Spice, which was Harlequin's erotica line. So in some ways, my first books were romance and erotica, but in some ways, they're they're just very plot heavy. I call them erotic, gothic soap operas because <laughs> they, they really don't fit. They, they have too much plot to be erotica. They have too much non-romance content to be a romance, and a lot of them don't end like romances. But I've been embraced by some romance readers, embraced by erotica readers, and soap opera is not a genre in fiction writing, unfortunately. But they're really just dirty soap operas. But yeah, so that was it. You could say I, I sold out by making it an erotica novel when I hadn't intended it to be an erotica novel, but I was at that point in my life, $55,000 in student loan debt. So the the chance to, to hear an agent say, I could sell this. <laughs> I will do whatever you tell me to do. I will put aliens in it. I will do anything <laughs> you want if you think I can dig my way out of student loan debt with any of these books. And I did. I think what I found most interesting was that, was this going on when you were in seminary? Oh, yeah. I wrote the book that eventually became The Siren, which is my first published novel, while I was in seminary, Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. And I was writing it in class because I was bored and I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be a professor of theology. and It's called the Original Sinner series, so it already has a theological name. I was in seminary when I started writing it, and I fell in love with writing, the act of writing. I didn't have a book deal. I didn't have an agent. I just have this this passion for writing. I finally discovered my passion at about age 26 or 27. And I knew I couldn't do both. I couldn't stay in grad school because I wasn't giving it any attention at all. My grades were really, really starting to, to tank because I was writing all the time. And that was the only thing that gave me any real joy. So I went to speak to my RA. I was living in student housing at the time. I said, I think I want to quit school. And so she met me for lunch to talk me out of it, out of quitting seminary. And I told her my story about writing. I didn't mention uh, that there was a dominatrix character in the book. But (laughs) I 
I did talk about how it made me feel to write it. And at the end, I'm getting choked up. I haven't told this story in so long. She said, go, just go. Oh. You got it. You have to do this. That's great. I mean, great was- that she recognized that you were meant to do something else, you know? That- yes. Hopefully you're the first person who believed in me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. when I read that, I love the juxtaposition you know, I read the HuffPost thing and I texted Amy and I'm like, I already like this lady. <laughs> I'm like, you're in seminary and you're writing romance erotica. I just, I it's in, like, I love it. I'm in Hebrew class and church history writing sex scenes behind my hand. <laughs> Actually, there weren't that sex scenes in the first draft, but there was still a quirky dominatrix in the book, which I just read Cushiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey, which was a, this epic fantasy novel about a kinky courtesan in this wild fantasy world where prostitution is basically accepted. So that book blew my mind and, and that's what put me on that path of wanting to explore it the concept of pain and suffering because I took a whole class on pain and suffering the theology of pain in seminary so these thoughts and theologies were in my head and and I was connecting them to BDSM in some ways that were at least interesting to me and turned out to be very interesting to my readers now that I've written nine ten I've lost count maybe 15 original sinners books in that series there's nine main books and there's a whole bunch of offshoots so clearly readers found the connection interesting too So I quit seminary to become a smut peddler. (laughs) Well, let's talk for a second about erotica because so we're kind of looking to you as the professional, the person who's been doing this a long time. So what is the difference between romance and erotica and how do those differ from smut? Can you just give us like the the basic (laughs) two minute tutorial? Yes. So romance, capital R, walk into Barnes and Noble or Carmichael's, go to the romance section. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about romantic books. We're talking about romance, proper noun. Those have very strict criteria. They have a couple and it's getting better. Sometimes there's a threesome, but usually it's a couple and they fall in love. The whole book is about them overcoming obstacles, internal and external to be together and ending optimistically with them together. Maybe not getting married, but maybe someday. So they do have to have a happy ending happy ever after or happy for now, something like that. And that's the strict definition of romance from the Romance Writers of America. So love story is a love story, but it is not a romance novel. She dies in the end. So Mm. that shocked someone when I was teaching a romance class. She said, are you telling me love story is not a romance novel? It's like, no, but it is a love story. Erotica (laughs) is very different. So erotica can be anything as long as it's full of sex. That really is it. It's about sex. There's tons of sex scenes. They're explicit. They're on the page. You know, there's erotic short stories, erotic novels. They all have the same thing in common, which is explicit sex scenes. So uh, an erotica novel can end unhappily. You know, you can have an erotic mystery, that sort of thing. It can have almost no plot at all, as long as there's plenty of sex scenes in it. So it's a much more flexible genre, but it's not particularly popular because it's very hard to put a plot in erotica or put erotica in a book with with a plot because <laughs> one is always getting in the way of the other and erotic romance is, is simply a romance novel with many explicit sex scenes but it still has to follow the rules of romance with a couple uh, working to overcome their obstacles to be together and to have an optimistic ending where they are together and plan to stay together 
And smut is just a slang term for erotica, or that's what you call erotica if you read something that you don't like or you think is bad. And erotica is what you call it when you think it's good. I have a sense of humor about it, so I'm happy to refer to myself as your friendly neighborhood smut peddler. All right. Well, I feel like I've got a little bit more of a handle on the different terminology because, you know, Amy and I, we don't know what we're talking about here. So think about mystery novels. You can have a literary fiction novel that is based on a mystery. And by the end of the novel, the mystery is still not solved, but the characters have learned to live with the mystery. That's a novel and it's a perfectly acceptable way to end your, your mystery fiction, but it is not how you write a mystery novel, capital M, that goes in the mystery section with the cozy mysteries and the Agatha Christie and the sort of books like that. It would be in, in general fiction or literary fiction if the mystery is not solved by the end. If you want to be in the mystery section, you have to solve the mystery. If you want to be in the romance section, you have to have a happy ending. Hmm. So did you read any of the classic writers of erotica? And I'm thinking of people like Henry Miller and Anise Nin. I remember reading Story of O by Pauline, and I don't remember her last name. She's French. But anyway, did you read any of those when you started writing yourself? And if you did, how do you think modern erotica differs from those examples, which were, you know, now almost a century ago? You know, I haven't read much modern erotica because not that many people are publishing it, they're all erotic romances because those sell better. I have read a lot of the classics, Nene, and I haven't read Henry Miller. I'm very wary of erotica written by men. Mm. I'm sure I will at some point just because I enjoy reading the classics and Henry Miller. What I have read of him is very, very funny. But yes, I read Story of O. In fact, my book, The Chateau, is the entire book is an homage to the Story of O. It's like a femdom cult that worships it as their holy book. And so they have a a madame who is in charge of this household of dominant women and the men there are the the slaves and the servants. So it's sort of a a looking glass world that's a complete homage to the story of O, which was really fun to write. Well, on your website, I went through and looked at all your different books. And so they're in these different categories, right? So like gothic romance and stuff like that. Do you have a favorite, you know, or some easier to write and some more difficult to write and with that being the case do you have favorite even though a favorite might not necessarily mean the easiest one to write well I think of them almost the books I've written like relationships because it takes so long to write a book it's like being in a relationship with your fictional characters but then the relationship ends and you move on. It's hard to look back on the books that I wrote and feel any strong feelings for them. I was in love with them while I was writing them and now I've moved on. So I'm in love with the current book I'm writing. But my past books, I look at them and I go, that one was easy to write, that one was hard to write. And so it's mostly just pride that I got them done, period. For example, The Lucky Ones was incredibly hard to write. The Red was incredibly easy to write. But it's not that I loved one because it was easy and I hate one because it was hard. I'm just proud that I wrote The Red in three weeks and it's made a ton of money, which I did not expect. And proud that I finished The Lucky Ones because I thought it would kill me at some one point. The the Lucky Ones, and I think also The Bourbon Thief, those were more like popular women's sus- suspense fiction. So. Yeah. Is there anything related to it not being in the romance genre that made those harder for you to to write or that had nothing to do with that? They were just harder to write because they're much more plotty. You don't have 
25% of your book or more as sex scenes, but you still have to have the same word count. You have to have a lot more conflict. You have to have a lot more character development and a lot more plot. So they were very hard to write, especially because I had never written anything like that before. And writing a Southern Gothic like The Bourbon Thief is fraught with peril because you're dealing with issues of race and gender violence and that sort of thing. And the dark history of America and the the original sin of, of slavery. And so it was it was a heavy, hard book to write, being sensitive to all of these issues while also still being brutally honest about them. That was probably a book that I had the most research readers and beta readers because it, it dealt with so many complicated issues. And The Lucky Ones was just one of those books that I thought it was one thing. I had a good idea and I stuck with it too long. Sometimes your idea for the book is the thing that gets you to start writing it, but it is not the thing that keeps you writing it. Sometimes you have to throw out the idea because it's not working, but maybe a character is, or maybe a subplot is. And so if I get too married to the original concept, I will drive myself nuts trying to make it work and it just wasn't working. So eventually I wrote a a full draft of it that was terrible and I gave it to my editor and she said, this doesn't work at all. But this one thing here, this idea, there was a fantasy element in it and a science fiction element in it. And she said the science fiction element worked. Work on that. And so the book became completely different. There was nothing of the original in the published version. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Even, the, even the characters' names changed. I re- wrote that book so much. <laughs> was that super frustrating? Or by the end, did you feel like it was a better book because of it? Was it was much like- better. It was much better. Yes. So it mm-hmm. is super frustrating at the time. But I think I counted. I'm up to somewhere between 28 and 32 novels. So I have been through that so many times. I have been through this book is not working. I just want to beat my head against the wall. Individual scenes are fine and certain characters have some good lines, but the book is just not going anywhere. I can't get this to work. I've worked through that so many times that I know if I just keep trying, I will get through it. My last full-length novel, The Pearl, was the same way. I probably wrote the first 10,000 words in... 10 to 15 different ways and threw them all out. You know, the characters knew each other in the past. No, that doesn't work. The characters hate each other. That doesn't work. The characters don't have any history that they know of, but they have a secret history that they don't know of. She's funny, but he's not. He's funny, but she's not. You know, I tried tried everything. (laughs) And the book as a whole took three months to write, but the first month was spent on false starts that probably ended up to be about a hundred thousand words of false starts. But I just kept going because I've been through this before and I knew I was going to get through it. And eventually I had a breakthrough. And once you have that breakthrough, it's like whoosh. And then I wrote the rest of the book in, in a month. I read a quote, something about hitting the rock with the sledgehammer a hundred times until it breaks on the hundredth uh, strike of the sledgehammer, but it would not break on the hundredth strike if it had not been for strike one through 99. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's my entire writing life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned that your book that came out, I think it was in December, right? The Pearl is part of the Godwick series. And I saw that you have four books coming out in 2021. And I'm, so I'm wondering, that has to be a lot of pressure to write so many books in a year. Well, the the books that are coming out this year are reprints. So I'm not writing them. (laughs) 
Well, the one called The Auction, I did a rewrite on because it was originally a free story that I just posted on my website. I wrote very quickly about 10 years ago or something ridiculous like that. So it needed updating. So that one's been updated, but the rest are just reprints. I do usually write about two books a year. So, so I mean, how, how much time a day do you spend writing? There's only so much water in the well on a daily basis. So no more than four hours. And even that's kind of a stretch. Uh, the rest of the time is spent reading and thinking and making notes and petting my kitty. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of thing, going for walks and whatnot. The book's always on the mind. It's always on simmer on the back burner, even when I'm not writing it. But yeah, actual writing, about three hours, I would say, when I'm writing, writing. There's just nothing good that comes out after hour three or four, which I have to learn. You know, when I was a younger writer, I would be so proud of myself. I wrote... 5,000 words today. I spent eight hours writing today. And then I realized eventually most of it I had to throw out. So maybe if I I spend more time thinking and and less time just putting garbage on the page, I would have less to throw away. If it's not going on the page, it's still going on in my head. I've gotten better at figuring out the problems in my head before they end up on the page. So one of the things we were curious about, and I guess this is part of the work you're doing that's not typing, like actually writing the story, but we're always curious about research because if somebody's writing a historical fiction, they're going to do research. So, but we were careful because we're not, we're not asking about you about your sex yeah. life, you know, which is nice in the... because some people have. <laughs> they think that's a really valid thing to write. You're an erotica writer, therefore your life should be an open book. Before I was married, I was much more of an open book. I, I did research on the siren, like I said, the main character is a dominatrix. So I did go to a dungeon and I had a session with a dominatrix and I wrote a blog post about it. This is what happened. This is what to expect. It was really fun. I was literally her only female client she's ever had in her entire dominatrix career, which was fun to be the one and only. And what was very cute was the dominatrixes were so honored that I wrote about them. They started following me on Twitter and we still keep in touch. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Was that something that you did more of in terms of research early on in your career? And now because you have the experience and you've done the research, you don't have to do that as much anymore? Right. I mean, when you write a series like The Original Sinners, it's a world that I know so well that it's like going home. Anytime I write an Original Sinners story, which has to do with uh, a quirky dominatrix and her lovers and her clients and all the drama around them. And so it's like going home again. And and I know enough, I don't need to read books about dominatrixes anymore. I've read them all and that sort of thing. And the hardest part is figuring out, what have I not done yet? Mm. <laughs> when you write so many books in the same series, you know, people want more, they keep wanting more. And I have to tell readers, you know, I have to do terrible things to these characters if I give them <laughs> another book. There has to be drama. There has to be conflict. Do you want me to keep breaking these two people up? Can't they just be happy? Can't we let them just be happy? Like, no. So, some readers don't understand that, that that if they want another book with this particular set of characters then they'll have I'll have to put them through hell but in terms of getting inspiration you know you hear about certain crime writers for example that their inspiration is a crime that happened so when you're writing romance or romantic erotica do you find inspiration in the real world or does that happen or does it all just kind of come from your imagination 99% is 
pure imagination. And the other 1% is the occasional story that I'll see. Or the 1% is, is something that Dominatrix has told me or someone has told me that I think would make a neat scene. They don't give me ideas for the, the books as a whole, just for individual scenes, that sort mm. of thing. But yeah, it really comes from personal fascinations, personal passions, settings. I love gothics for the uninitiated. A gothic is a mix of romance and horror or domestic relationship and horror, a.k.a. your husband might be trying to kill you. Jane Eyre is a classic gothic, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Mr. Rogers. Rebecca. Rebecca, exactly. But gothic has changed a lot. And so the modern gothics tend to be like something like Gone Girl or Girl on the Train. So I have a, a California old Hollywood gothic I want to write. And the plot doesn't matter so much. You know, I will figure out a plot eventually, but it's the setting and the, the idea of a former child star and this older handsome man who Hollywood royalty and the beautiful house that will be on the cliff overlooking the ocean on in California and set in the early, late 60s, early 70s, something like that at the, the last gasp of old Hollywood. So that's where some ideas come from or just images and fascinations and that sort of thing. When people ask, where do you get your ideas? It's just from my own demented brain. (laughs) My own demented brain. That's a good answer. Plus when I do have an idea for a book, the book by the time it comes out has changed so much. The idea is not there anymore. It's the same for the lucky ones and the bourbon thief ended up being completely different. And the pearl ended up being completely different than I had had planned on writing. So the idea just gets me to start exploring. And then the book has a life of its own. It has a will of its own. We arm wrestle for domination. (laughs) (laughs) It eventually wins and it pins me and I say uncle and then I write it the way it wants to be written, which is always better than I had originally thought of. Well, let's talk for a second about the nature of fantasy in romance and erotica. So I imagine that some readers who delve into these genres with some of the issues of domination and submission, they might feel uncomfortable with that. But at the same time, the power struggle issues, those are in all types of fantasy novels. Like it occurred to me when I was kind of thinking through this, like the fellowship of the ring is totally about power, weakness and dominance, except there's no sex. So can you discuss your thoughts on the nature of fantasy in the books that you write and how does adding sex to the equation make it different or does it or should it it's complicated i remember talking to someone online a couple of guys were making fun of 50 shades of gray and i'm i'm not a fan of the book i tried to read couldn't get into even the first one but they were making fun of the total fantasy element of a woman with no money being swept off her feet by a billionaire and i said how is that any different then Die Hard and every spy <laughs> novel ever written where a schlubby American man <laughs> saves the day and is seduced by a beautiful Russian spy. I mean, Die Hard is ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense that this just regular New York cop can tie a rope around his waist and dive through a, a window down to a lower floor. He would be cut in half. Mythbusters have proved <laughs> that Die Hard is pure <laughs> fantasy but it's a male fantasy and we like male fantasies and we respect male fantasies in fiction like fellowship of the rings lord of the rings and we laugh at the female fantasies and in this day of 
crippling student loan debt. What is the more comforting fantasy? A rich guy comes and sweeps you off your feet and pays off your student loans. Is something I would get into much more than I would get into male fantasy of spies and shoot him up and whatnot. But back to power and fantasy. Yes, every book has a power stroke. It's conflict. That's the heart of every book is conflict. And in a mystery novel, there's a power struggle between the detective who's trying to find the criminal and the criminal who doesn't want to be caught. So it's in every single genre. The issue when you add sex and romance to a book is reader expectations change. Mm. They are willing to throw suspension of disbelief. They're happy to do that when it's something like Die Hard. But when it's with a relationship, they have not and they will never live a situation like Die Hard. Let's hope that they never get taken hostage (laughs) and held at gunpoint. So that's a a far out there fantasy that's just never going to happen to 99.999% of us. But almost all of us will be in a romantic relationship at some point and a sexual relationship. So it's because much more fraught when you're reading a romantic or a sexual relationship that feels dangerous or unhealthy. Like I said, when when John McClane jumps out of a window with a rope around his stomach, he would, in the real world, cut himself in half. He would die. He would not survive that scene (laughs) in real life. But then you have a sex scene in an erotica novel that involves choking or something like that. And a reader who would have no problem watching Die Hard, even though if somebody tried that, they'd kill themselves, would have a big problem reading a choking scene, even if it was consensual, because they much more likely can imagine somebody choking them, a violent domestic partner hurting them. So it seems much more personal, much more home, you know, diehards way out there, but relationships are in the home. So it does change reader expectations. And it's very, very frustrating for writers who want to write fantasy erotica or dark erotica and say, you look, you know, you're not asking all these male writers, Robert Harris and Hannibal the cannibal, you're not asking him not have an awesome cannibal character because that's not nice, but all my (laughs) heroes have to be nice. So yeah, it gets really frustrating as a writer. There's been many times I wanted to call it quits and, and go write cozy mysteries under a pen name, which I might do someday. But yeah, it's more reader expectations in romance and erotica that make the power struggle more complicated. And I guess too, I never thought about it, but I mean, you are raised in any type of religious upbringing. Religion doesn't instruct you in kidnapping or being kidnapped (laughs) or avoiding terrorism or the eye of Sauron or whatever. You know, it's like you don't get instructed in those things, but you do in sex and it's very connected to religion and so I think that that's part of it too whether you want to go into reading a book with that lens if you were brought up a certain way you're going to anyway you cannot detach yourself from that as a reader yeah I remember having a conversation with my old youth pastor back in college and there was some r-rated movie her sons wanted to see that had like a sex scene in it And she wouldn't let them see it, even though they were teenagers. But they played violent video games and they watched violent rated R movies. And I said, why will you let them watch all this stuff with violence? And you won't let them watch this. She said, I can't have them seeing sex scenes. (laughs) Why? That's what I'm asking. Wouldn't you rather find out that your son was having consensual sex with his girlfriend than find out that he joined a terrorist organization or had robbed a bank? Like this normal, healthy thing that people do, even Christians do, this very normal part of life, they come to it with a lot of baggage. But I had to and and have had to work very hard to get over. We talked about the expectations that writers have, you know, and the baggage that readers bring to their reading. You know, with you writing in a genre that 
probably gets more, and I'm putting this in quotes, like morality grief than other (laughs) genres. Did you have, when you first started, any ideas about literary prejudice? Because I know for myself, you know, I have done this before. Like I had a certain idea of what Stephen King was like and what his writing was like without ever having read it, (laughs) anything. And then once I read some of the stuff, I was like, oh, this was really good. And I think that people do that with probably a lot of genres without ever having read it. So what are your thoughts on that process and people who are have certain stereotypes about the genres that you write in? I try not to let them get to me because they don't pay my bills. I care mm. about my readers who get it. I have this wonderful tight group of readers who will buy anything I release. And they tell me that, which is very sweet of them. So I have this core audience that completely embraces and gets what I'm trying to do. And they're the ones that I think about and write for. You know, when the Pearl first came up on NetGalley, the first couple of reviews were from just, you know, random librarians or booksellers who were, who'd never read any of my books before. And they were shocked by it and they did not like it. And Andrew warned me, the, said the first couple of reviews on the Pearl on NetGalley, people are upset with the book. And I said, it's fine. My readers will get it. And they did. You know, the Pearl got a starred review from Publishers Weekly and an amazing review from BookPage and an amazing review from Entertainment Weekly. It's like the, the people who read this stuff all the time, not just my stuff, but erotic romance in general, will understand it and they'll get what I'm trying to do. So they're the only ones I, I worry about. I'm, I'm not trying to get cozy mystery readers to give up their cozy mysteries and come read my erotica novels. There are plenty of erotica and erotic romance readers out there. So we're just trying to find them. But, you know, I don't read young adult and I don't read Western. So there is absolutely no reason for a young adult or a Western writer to try to appeal to me because mm. I'm not going to read it. I have my own genres that I like, and I like them, and I read pretty widely, but I've tried. I tried young adult. I tried Western, that sort of thing. It just isn't for me, but it is for a lot of other people. So go focus on them. Don't worry about me. There's plenty of books (laughs) to go around. So I don't worry about it. They're going to have their prejudices, and that's fine. Their prejudices are their own baggage, and I don't carry anybody's luggage but my own. Well, that's a great way to end it. I love it. Tell us one final thing. You said you're working on some of the ones that are coming out this year are reprints. Yes, I'm very excited about these. These are the ones I'll talk about. So I had books that came out so long ago, we got the rights back on several of my novellas. And my husband, Andrew Schaefer, is also a brilliant cover designer. And our favorite book covers are the hard case crime novel covers with these old-fashioned vintage pulp covers. So my husband has designed these beautiful pulp covers to go with my reprints. So it's called the Original Sinner's Pulp Collection. And people who have read these books and read them a dozen times are now buying them in paperback because they're in paperback now for the first time, but just because these pulp covers are so awesome. But they're at tiffanyrice.com slash books if you want to look at my amazing husband's phenomenal covers. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Tiffany and with Carrie. And Carrie, I am curious to hear about what you're reading, because apparently it is not what I thought you were going to talk about. What's the surprise? I I changed my mind. So I started reading The Whisper Man by Alex North. And oh my gosh, I'm like 
45, 50% of the way done. This book is creeping me out and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Like I love it, but I also don't love it because I'm a little scared to read this at night. So this book, it's a mystery, but it's, it's very spooky. So there's a boy that has gone missing and the police officers are trying to find this child and then the story switches and then you see this father son the the son is like around seven years old and they have moved into this new house and this little boy is kind of strange like he has an imaginary friend and the father doesn't like that he has this imaginary friend and the imaginary friend has told this little boy this little rhyme thing about don't leave the door cracked because the whispers will get you or something like that I can't remember it exactly you've got this kid who's acting strangely and I'm at the point in the story where the father has discovered something in his garage it's creeping me out because I'm sitting here going is the boy can he talk to dead people is he possessed what's going on and then the child who had disappeared in the story you learn more about what happened to that child and this serial killer I don't know like there's just a whole lot of stuff going on but it is super freaky and this is the kind of stuff I had been reading and I'm still kind of very slowly reading it but I had started reading a book of short stories by Ramsey Campbell and those were creepy but they were like things that I could tell myself weren't possible right like I can convince myself that oh that stuff really doesn't happen but this book this stuff could happen but you still want to read it oh my gosh I can't put it down because even though I was looking forward to talking to Tiffany today I was also like daggone it I gotta put this book down to go (laughs) record this podcast so that is high praise I don't normally think of you as a person who likes to read page turners per se yeah I don't I looked it up. The New York Times editor's pick says, if you like being terrified, the Whisper Man has your name on it. Yeah. (laughs) And the funny thing is, I don't like being terrified. And I guess that's the thing. It's like that sweet spot for me right now. I mean, it's really pushing all my buttons in a good way. So I will cease talking about it because I have nothing to say other than wow, wow. Wow, different versions of wow. So anyway, <laughs> Tiffany, what have you been reading lately that has wowed you? Probably the book that has most wowed me is Danielle Evans' The Office of Historical Corrections, which is a um, short story collection, and it's just phenomenal. I'm not a big short story reader usually. This was my book of the month pick, and I think I just picked it because it sounded better than some of the other ones. And you usually read short stories you pick one up you read it you put it down and maybe two weeks later you'll pick up and read another short story because they're done you don't feel compelled to binge it's not like you have to find out how the book ends because it's one short story at a time I read this one in a day which is a huge huge compliment to short story collection she's such a phenomenal writer I'm not a short story writer, but I would use these to teach short story writing. I know just enough about short story writing to be dangerous, which is every short story needs a turn, not not necessarily a twist. Twists are more for novels, but short stories require a turn. You, you think you're going from point A to point B, and at some point you swerve and you end up off the map at point C or D or Z in a short story. It takes you somewhere else. And I love that. And nobody does it better 
that I've read than Daniel Evans. My favorite, to give you an example of what I mean by the, the swerve or the turn, the short story is about uh, a couple is about to get married and the female friend of the groom has been invited to the wedding and the bridesmaids uh, and the bride too kind of think that the groom and the female friend of the groom uh, had an affair at some point during the engagement. And they didn't, they were, they were very close, but they didn't sleep together at any point. But when the groom takes off the morning of the wedding and decides he just can't get married, they come immediately to the female friend and the bride does demanding where the groom is. And the female friend who feels guilty because she saw him leaving, takes off with the bride trying to find him, even though she has no idea where he is. And she sort of makes up a destination. Well, by the end of the story, and I'm giving it away, but it's worth reading. Uh, the groom has decided he's changed his mind. He does want to get married. But now the bride doesn't want to get married. <laughs> she wants to hang out with the friend. So these two women who start off as rivals end up supporting each other and being together at the end in this very playful, hopeful, really weird way huh. <laughs> that, that I did not see coming in a million years. I didn't see that ending. She, she sets you up to think it's going to be a girl versus girl cat fight. And this road trip they go on together in this short story completely changes everything. Working as sort of healing for both of these women and the groom is forgotten. And I love that. Oh, oh, it just made me so happy. Oh, I can't tell you how happy that made me. Because 99 out of 100 writers wouldn't have even thought to do that. You know, they would have kept the rivalry between the women, the, the man as a pawn, and oh, it was so good. I cannot recommend this book enough. It's phenomenal. Oh, sold. I'm going to go get it from the library by ebook as soon as we get off of here. Well, Amy, what's been wowing you? It's nonfiction, so it's not quite as exciting as the other two that you all have talked about. But it's a book called Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia by Christina Thompson, and it was written in 2019. So I picked this one up because it's the monthly selection of the new book group that the Louisville Zoo has. It's called Conversation and Conservation Reading Club. Say that one like five times <laughs> fast. But it focuses on nonfiction books that explore areas of the social sciences and have something to do with culture, science, and or biology. So I first joined this reading club December and where they, they talked about a book called A Polar Affair. And it was about the study of penguins and the exploration of Antarctica in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And if you need more ideas for some of your erotic romance books, Tiffany, it was all about the study of penguin sex. And penguins I... are really horny. So <laughs> <laughs> you might want to look into that one. But this particular book is looking at the history of Western exploration of Polynesia and trying to answer the question, where did the inhabitants of the group of islands originally come from? And this is a question that I had never really thought about before. And this book is basically a detective story to answer that question. So if you think about these specific islands, Polynesia, they're referred to in the shape of a triangle, the Polynesian Triangle. And so to give you some reference, the top of the point of the triangle would be Hawaii. And then the eastern tip of the triangle would be Easter Island, which is closer to the coast of Chile in South America. And the western tip of the triangle is New Zealand. So that one's closer to Australia. And there are thousands and thousands of miles between these islands. So how would a group of people with what Westerners would consider primitive tools and materials come to navigate and to settle all of these islands? 
So the book starts off with the age of exploration in Europe. And at that time, you know, Europeans were exploring everywhere, the North Pole, the South Pole, North and South America, as well as the Pacific. So it follows that history. But the author goes into all the different theories and ways social scientists have been trying to solve this problem. So they've tried to solve it many ways. At first, they just started by asking the inhabitants, but most of these islands have no written language. And the keepers or the storytellers of their history had to memorize it all. And some of the the history keepers had to remember genealogy back like hundreds of generations. And their mythology didn't give many clues. And then they tried to use language and they tried to tie the islands together linguistically. And then they looked at biology and the types of animals and foods that grow on each island. And they would take things with them from island to island, mainly dogs, pigs, chickens, and rats. And then there was the archaeology, like they'd find pottery shards and they would compare them. And then there's, you know, just the simple weather conditions. The wind patterns are such that it would make it much harder to sail east than west. And there were lots of other ways that they, you know, tried to solve this problem as well. But as we get into the mid and late 20th century, they were able to use carbon dating and DNA testing to try to answer this question. And I learned a lot of the origins of terms that I had no idea were connected to the Pacific, like the term the doldrums, trade winds, or about tiki or contiki and what all those things referenced. So... It was interesting to see how humans use different methods over time to solve these questions and how, as science improves, they get closer and closer to their answer to this puzzle. And the other thing I appreciated is that this author is married to a man of Maori heritage. That's an indigenous person from New Zealand. So she does call out Western bias about the analysis of Polynesian culture. I did enjoy this book, although I'll admit I had the same problem with it that I sometimes have with other nonfiction, which is that I get about halfway through and then I feel like, completely saturated with that topic. Half the book would have been sufficient for me to get the book, but I did feel a twinge of that with this, but because it's a puzzle that's being solved, it propelled me and my desire to find out what the answer is. And I'm not going to tell you the answer because then there would be no point in reading the book, but (laughs) I did enjoy it. It took me a little while to to get through. I had to put it aside several times because I had other books I had to read in between because I don't feel like I read nonfiction particularly fast because they're not generally page turners unless for me anyway, unless they're like true crime or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a little slower at, at nonfiction too. So I understand. But I, but I really enjoyed it, but it wasn't a wow, wow kind of book though. I know, but you, you talked with a lot more depth than what I talked about. <laughs> I, I think a Neanderthal could probably describe the book better than what I did. You sold us on it. That's, that's all we need. That's right. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Tiffany her top five. We are back with Tiffany and we are going to ask her her top five. So your husband, Andrew Schaefer, is also a writer. He's been a guest on our show as well, and he's probably best known for his Obama-Biden mystery series. What is the top hardest thing about having a two-author household? I will tell you the hardest thing. You cannot get away with when you're married to another writer. (laughs) (laughs) If I were married to an accountant and I said, I'm going to go do some research for my book, he would say, or she would say, good luck, dear. Enjoy your research. If I tell that to Andrew, my writer husband, he would say, you're procrastinating, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> he knows all the tricks. 
knows all the tricks. Yes. We can't get away with being lazy. We don't let each other get away with that. You know, if he's struggling with a book, I can help him with it, which is one of the best things about it. And and he can help me. He's the humorist and, and I write the twisty plotty books, but I help make his books funnier and he makes my plots better. I have usually plot holes as big as black holes and... Uh, <laughs> finds them he has such an eye for plot holes i can tell him what i'm thinking about writing and he will catch all the plot holes before i start writing it he'll say this that doesn't make sense this doesn't work and he'll push me and it'll drive me crazy and i'll get mad and then two days later i realize he was right about everything and then i figured <laughs> out <laughs> yeah so we're a good team the serious top hardest thing is that we're both freelance writers which means we have to pay for our own health insurance through the affordable care market mm. is outrageously expensive. So keep that in mind if you are dreaming of the freelance lifestyle. Probably good if one person in the couple has a day job. We're doing fine, but it's still something that is the only true downside of being married to another freelance writer. Mm. Question number two, you mentioned that you love house porn. Define that term <laughs> for us and tell us the top thing you love about it. I love our house that we live in. I don't want to move. We've got it painted beautifully. The house is super cute. We love the neighborhood. There's stuff we want to change, but it's small stuff. But I still look at Zillow every day. Every day. I love looking at what houses are for sale in our neighborhood and what houses are for sale in cities that we visited and what houses are converted churches that have now been turned into single family homes. And, you know, my husband doesn't understand. We live in a home. We love our home. Why are you looking at Zillow? Are you planning on moving? It's like, no, this is personal, honey. <laughs> but yeah, it's the fantasy. You see a house that's completely different from your house and it becomes a fantasy of who would I be if I lived in that house? What kind of lifestyle? would they have what secrets would they have okay question number three in addition to writing you also teach writing so tell us a little bit about that and the top reason why teaching in a master's of fine arts program would be your dream job well, I work for the Carnegie Center of Literacy and Learning in Lexington, Kentucky. They teach creative writing classes there and foreign languages and stuff. It's a community education center that's wonderful. So I started teaching creative writing classes there and just absolutely fell in love with it. It's just a way to like sell your passion to other people and, and to encourage other writers just teaching them this is hard so don't give up when it gets hard because it will get hard and your first thought will be my idea is bad my writing is bad i thought i had talent but i don't i should go find something else to do that will be your first instinct i change their thinking to it feels hard because it is hard if i keep going i'll get better at it this is hard for professionals so i am not alone here <laughs> this is something that i value and it's worth the work so just to change their mindsets is such a joy i work mainly with retirees i like working with older people they're so hungry because they've had this dream their entire working career for you know 40 years they were accountants or attorneys or, or teachers and they had the passion to as soon as i retire i'm going to write that book i got this idea for a book and they're so hungry for it after 30 or 40 years that that they just eat everything up and have so much enthusiasm so if i could do that as a job and get health insurance for it, again back to the health insurance <laughs> and your yeah. dream job even if it meant i wrote less if i helped create more books it would be worth it 
You attended seminary for several years in hopes of getting a master's in theology, and you've talked in articles you've written about really connecting with some of the writings of religious academics like Thomas Merton. So what was one of the top things that attracted you to religious philosophy? I think the reason I was so attracted to to religious philosophy is the same reason that everybody else is. We want to understand how the world works, how the universe works. The world is scary. People talk about how things are scary right now, but it has always been scary. We've always had death with us all the time. And that fear and that confusion and, and the desire to have secret knowledge or to crack the code of the universe is what brings people to churches, to cults, to diets, uh, to, to yoga, to anything that they think will crack the code to make them understand how to be a better person, to have the secret knowledge of you know, what's going on behind closed doors, behind the veil. So it's enormously attractive and, and people are attracted to it in, in many ways. You know, it's very funny. I, I think it, it's one of the Scandinavian countries I read about that their church attendance over the last century has dropped to single digits percentage of the population. But now a belief in ghosts and spirits has exploded. So they don't believe in, in God and the Trinity and that sort of thing, but they do believe in ghosts. This yeah. urge to believe. You know, Iceland is a very secular country, except they literally believe in elves. Before they build buildings in Iceland, they have to check for elves. So <laughs> there is this human need for magic and mystery and the sacred and the strange. Yeah. And just a real affection that I have for for Jesus as a person, for the things he said and the things he did and the way he treated women and and the way he thought and and the light he brought. And, you know, I go to a a hip liberal Catholic church still, or I did until we turned to to Zoom services. But even now, I'm still consider myself a member of the church. But yeah, so it's still there. It's very much part of my life. So question number five, you and your husband watch a lot of British television. So what is the attraction to British TV specifically? And is there a top British show that you would recommend people watch? I started watching British comedy when I was in middle school and Comedy Central became a thing that we had in the house. I sort of stumbled across an episode of Black Adder starring Rowan Atkinson. Black Adder, which is uh, a character called Edmund Black Adder. We follow him through British history. And I fell in love with it so hard when I was 12 years old. Just the wit, the absolute sparkling, polished to a diamond sheen wit that the British have. And the whimsy and the silliness. And and they're much more irreverent. You know, we have it now with drunk history. But for a long time, I couldn't imagine Americans making fun of George Washington. (laughs) Americans making fun of our founding fathers. They're still almost... Catholic saints to some people, the founding fathers, you can't criticize them at all. And, you know, Drunk History is a YouTube show, whereas Blackadder was mainstream British television making fun of their their heroes and stuff. So I just fell madly in love with this sparkling British wit, and it's never gone away. And I lost a lot of sleep as a kid because I had to stay up real late to watch the British shows. (laughs) So two British shows to watch. We've been watching Mock the Week, which is fascinating and humbling because it is a British panel show, seven comedians make fun of the news. So they bring oh. up news stories and then they just improv riffing on stuff going on in the news. The other one I recommend is not a series so much as uh, four Netflix specials called Repertoire by the British comic James Acaster. 
Phenomenal. So they're four one-hour stand-up specials, and they're all interconnected, and they build on each other. So it's good to, to block off two evenings to watch them close together so you, you'll catch all the references. And it is a work of art. It is magic. And James is consistently called the, the best young British comedian in the entire U- United Kingdom. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today. You are our first romance writer that we've had on the show, and you were amazingly witty and fun to talk to. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.